What's up? Welcome to part three of our backup QB stories from Dual Threat and The Ringer. I'm your host, Ryan Rosillo, and the final two are going to be great. Today, we have Trent Dilfer, Super Bowl winner. And I'll admit, before he became a guy I'd like to call a friend, he was the life raft of arguments for people that would look at their team and say, oh, our team's doesn't have a great quarterback, but we can still win a Super Bowl. Look what the Ravens did with Trent Dilfer. Well, Dilfer, I think, has a better career than some people realize. He actually finished over 500, which isn't all on him. And his playoff record's incredible because of that great Ravens team. And it was the greatest single defense I've ever seen, at least for one season. And yes, you can put the 85 Bears in there, but I just, I was nine. So I didn't really, it didn't really sink in with me as much. Actually, it was 10. Wait a minute. Little error there. We don't even have to edit that one out, Kyle. Because this is going to be such a good deal here from Dilfer. His struggles as the hotshot QB, his struggles with coaches, his struggles with himself, personal tragedy, the animosity that he had to get over, becoming best friends with a guy he's competing with. It's an incredible story. I knew Dilfer would be a great storyteller, and he was terrific. Here's Trent Dilfer. Just excited to call this guy a friend, and I'm, I'm really lucky actually throughout this entire backup quarterback series that we've run through here uh, that I have a personal relationship with most, but I'm very close to Trent Dilfer, and I am almost... I feel like I need to apologize for introducing you as part of our backup QB stories because you started a heck of a lot more than some of the other guys uh, that we've talked to. But let's go back to that time. You're at Fresno. You're a big kid. You beat USC in the bowl game. Your 1993 stats are incredible. You go sixth overall in 1994. Did you think deep down, like, I'm the man and I'm about to light this league on fire? Oh, beyond that. I mean, um, so full of myself, um, so narcissistic at the time, uh, as I say, a legend in my own mind. Um, you know, at the time, what we had done at Fresno and the amount of dudes I played with, I mean, you know, we had a bunch of dudes going play in the NFL, wide receiver, running back. Um, it just was easy, you know? So I figured, well, if football's easy, then why wouldn't it be easy at the next level? And then I think the biggest thing that happens is people start speaking nonsense in your life. You don't surround yourself with enough truth tellers. And I had people that I surround myself with um, that were just telling me how great I was going to be. And just telling me, you know, the sky's the limit. You're going to be one of the best ever. Um, And I had no reason not to believe them, right? Because I felt that way about myself. And they were telling me those things. And I was immature, um, very immature. Uh, but I had that ability, you know, to be the poser. I could fake maturity. I could fake sophistication. I could fake kind of the politician. Um, but deep down, I was, I was just an insecure kid that was out over his skis, but at the same time thought there's nothing I couldn't do uh, from a physical standpoint. I mean, I laugh every year when we hear these combine numbers, how great these numbers are. And I mean, hourly trained for the combine was 240 pounds and ran four, six something. And, you know, I could squat whatever he asked me to squat. I could bench whatever he asked me to bench. I could throw a football wherever he as far as he wanted me to throw it. And back then it was just more the dude, he looks the part as much as anybody's ever looked at. Why won't he be great? And then you weren't great. And that's <laughs> <laughs> an understatement. <laughs> that's why I love you. Uh, that's the understatement. That's the understatement of your series, I bet. Yeah, so that might be the highlight. If this wins any awards, that'll be the transition because it wasn't taped. It was just, you know, listening and, and knowing you. But 
despite the description of yourself, you're also one of the most honest people with yourself, the most self-deprecating. And so you come in and you start just a, a couple games for Sam Weish, and then you start the full season your second year. The splits were four touchdowns and 18 picks. It wasn't great. And then year three, you're on Dungy. The numbers are better, but it's still a pick fest. Where are you right now at this point in your head after three years in and two different coaches going, what the hell happened? Well, one, it would never work now. You know I mean? You would never get that long of a leash. The closest I saw to me leash-wise was Bortles. Um, rookie year wasn't that bad. Rookie year, there was hope. You know what I mean? I was learning. Sam was really good about how to get me in game. Um, competed well. Learned a lot. And second, when they traded Craig Erickson and gave me the keys of the car year two was the oh crap moment because I couldn't pose anymore. And I was the only one that knew that Craig had really been that mentor to me and been the one that steered me through some of the troubled waters of year one. And now I didn't have him. He's off in Indianapolis and, and I'm here in Tampa and I'm, I'm playing the part. So outwardly, it looks like I'm the dude, and inwardly, I'm like, oh, this this is all bad. We weren't very good. I knew that. I had better talent in Fresno um, every year I played there than we did in Tampa. I mean, we were brutally, we were brutally slow. Uh, it was just tough, and I wasn't very good. And I was, and I say this all the time. I think I was the single worst football player in the NFL uh, my second year. And those stats aren't like, oh, you know, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, it should have been worse. Um, if that's even comprehensible. Um, and then Tony comes in in year three, and it was just that setting, we're going to be patient, we're playing the long game, we value you not just as a, as a uh, prospect, you know, your potential, because I still had oodles of talent. Like, there still wasn't things like, there was nothing I couldn't do on the football field physically. And mentally, I was really good inside. So film cut-ups, boards, memorization, I was excellent there. It was that transition into the white line that messed me up. And uh, But Tony was like, we're going to work through this. We'll play the long game. We're going to build it around the run and defense. And, and it, it gave me kind of that third-year growth opportunity. And I really did play pretty darn good at the end of my third year, um, which gave everybody a lot of hope. Um, going into my fourth year, and I was maturing. And I think that's the biggest thing was Tony and that staff. Herm Edwards doesn't get enough credit uh, how, you know, Clyde, the people that Tony surrounded himself, and Tony will tell you this, are as impactful as Tony Dungy. He's in the Hall of Fame because of Herm Edwards and Clyde Christensen and um, Monty Kiffin and Rod Marinelli and Lovey Smith. You know what I mean? I mean, those guys were amazing. So the culture of our program um, really changed under Tony. And it was that, I guess just like that exhale, that calmness that um, kind of poured out all over all of us, which really kicked off the ability to have at the time, it was an epic season for all of us in 97, my fourth year. Despite the three challenging years, that fourth year was Trent Dilfer's only pro bowl, but going into 1998, he was still hearing the criticism, but he was sick of it. The recurrent criticism of Dilfer is that his mechanics are poor. He throws off the wrong foot, and he cannot throw the long ball with accuracy. 
that is something Trent does not accept. Well, you have to go back in time, and a lot of people won't realize when I came out of college, I was one of the most mechanically sound quarterbacks that ever played the position in college, and then many pro scouts and coaches said that about me. And then I took giant steps backwards my first few years mechanically. I got into some very sloppy habits and things that really affected my accuracy, um, affected my consistency. And last year, if you remember, that was one of the biggest things I worked on was I'm getting back to the fundamentals. Did you feel like you were back? Did you feel like, hey, you know what? This career is going to roll. Had, had you bought all the way back in, not just from the people that were looking at you in the huddle, but had you bought back into yourself? Yeah, I felt authentic. Like, if there's a theme for my life, it's authenticity. And that was the first year of learning what the authentic trend was. Who, who am I really? Not what have I been told I am, not what have I tried to pretend to be, um, not any of this other junk that we all deal with. And if you don't think you're dealing with it, you're lying to yourself because we all deal with it. And at some point in your life, as you mature, you start to recognize there's an authentic you. And and I started to begin to understand that. And and that's why I was able to be an impactful leader. That's why I was able to get back to being a great competitor. I still wasn't a great football player, but I was back to being a great um, competitor. Um, you know, we, we were able to overcome a lot of adversity. We were able to not flinch in big moments. We were able to take the worst franchise in football and take it to the playoffs for the first time in 17 years. We had, I think, seven-plus guys go to the Pro Bowl. Um, we became a tribe. You know, more than a team, we became a tribe. Um, you know, it was really that, and that's—I I could go on, and I don't want to eat up all our time. But to me, if I just had to give a theme, it would be I found or I began to find my authentic self, and then that just healed so many wounds—personal wounds and wounds I had created with my teammates and my coaching staff and the organization and the city. I mean, the city hated me. Sam Weiss and I got pelted by binoculars leaving games in year two. Year three, I was booed out of an Outback Steakhouse with my wife. Um, Wait a minute. You got I booed mean, out of it? You showed up to get a steak with your wife in Tampa, and they booed They booed you. I've never told the story to you. I thought I thought I said on the last pod. Yeah, we walk in. Like, I think it was Green Bay, I think. The details might be a little off. It's late in the season. Maybe the last game of the season were either Bears or Packers. I throw four picks. We go um, to the Outback on the way home on Bill Mabry. My wife and I put my name at the hostess stand. They announce us, and the majority of the restaurant stands up and booze. And my wife and I go right into the very middle of the restaurant. And <laughs> yeah. owned it. Can you put us in the middle, please, so everybody can see us? Uh, there has to be a no oh, yeah. rules so there was a, just there right was some there. deep hate. There was some... Uh, and I, there, when Tampa fans listen to this, we'll be like, yeah, I was one of them. And I don't blame them, honestly. The year four really healed a lot of that stuff. And Tony taught us, and Tony's staff, and I'm not trying to take credit away from Tony, but it's really, and again, please have him on at some point asking this question. It was the strength of his tribe, Monty and um, Herm. Monty and um, Herm and Lovey, uh, all those guys, and I'm leaving other ones out, that just their calming influence on us and their maturity and their wisdom speaking into us every single day about being a pro, about handling our business the right way, about representing our city, our franchise, ourselves, our name, uh, all those things. 
uh, really started taking the taking the fact. So you end up going eight and eight in that year after the playoff run where you beat Detroit, and then you lose your job to Sean King. And at first, it's because of injury. And I went back and looked at some of the stuff, and it didn't matter if the numbers are similar. Just at that point, it was new. And even though you'd kind of redeemed yourself a bit, did it feel like there's not really much I can do here after seven years in Tampa? It feels like the end, especially now that I've lost my job. Yeah, 98 is the most disappointing year because we got blamed for a lot of stuff that wasn't our fault offensively. And 98, you know, if you ask Warwick Dunn, Mike Allstott, Jacquez Green, uh, Riddell Anthony, Dave Moore, Paul Gruber, you know, you go down the list of us, we felt really disrespect. We felt like, wait a second, we're the fall guy when we just gave up a two-minute touchdown or we're the fall guy when we just gave up 300 yards rushing or we're the fall guy. That's when that defense versus offense stuff crept in because the defense was always defended and we were always the fall guy. Uh, so 98 has some bitterness. We all talk about it, and this is no secret, um, which really led to a 99 where now I think internally they started moving on. Now, you know, it's also doing massive amount of money at the time, at the end of 99. So all these discussions going on right now about, hey, do you pick up the player's option, right? It was that version of it back there. I had a clause in my contract that they had to buy back. Uh, they had to buy back a couple more years for a massive number. And I think the economics of it was that, well, we'd be much better off as a franchise if we went with a cheap quarterback instead of, I think it would have made me one of the highest paid players in football um, if they would have bought back that thing in 99. 99, I played my tail off. 99, I'll, I'll, you, let's go watch the film. Like, anybody wants to go talk about 99, um, Seahawks game, Chiefs game, you can go, you can go down the list after I got benched. For some stuff that wasn't, you know, necessarily, in my opinion, justified. Um, those last five games where I broke my collarbone, we did things offensively we hadn't done. The shackles came off. We were more aggressive. Guys were making plays. You know, we weren't playing in a in a cocoon. Um, but once I broke my collarbone, the decision's easy at that point. Guy's got a broken collarbone. He's already a, a polarizing figure in Tampa. It's been six years. And he's going to be one of the highest paid players in football. And frankly, I don't necessarily disagree with their decision from an economic standpoint. And that's kind of the story of 99 that never really gets told because I didn't want to be the one. I had matured enough at that point where I wasn't going to like tell the real story. It was like, hey, okay, cool. But no, you were never going to win. I I hate to interject here or cut you off. You were never going to win because if you look up those defenses statistically, you know, just me as the fan, you know, we're almost the same age. And I'm sitting at home watching these playoff games, and I was guilty of it too. Like I couldn't break down film. I, I wish I could break down film better than you know the the remedial level I'm at now. But when it's that defense, they're never going to get blamed for it. So going back to even the '98 exactly. season, they're I think fifth in points against '99. It's third in points against. So nobody's ever going to want to hear about any of the minutia of of why it's actually not always on you. And I'm not saying it's right or fair, but it's just what it is. Exactly. And that's why at the time, and even now, it's not even an issue anymore, but that's why I've grown enough as a person to know there's no winning this. That it's sad because I love these guys. I love the city, and my wife loves the city. We've had at the time, by this point, 99, we've had, I should know my kids' age, uh, we'd had three kids. Um, We just built 
you know, our dream home on the water and done all these things. And, um, it was, it was a saddening time, but one, I was mature enough to totally get it. That's why there was no bitterness. And, and that's why I went into the next part of the story, maybe as competitively and emotionally sharp as I've ever been in my life up until the last 75 minutes. So that leads us to the one season in Baltimore. After six years with the Tampa Bay Bucks, it was one stop in Baltimore, an unforgettable stop, but one Dilfer himself knew was going to go his way. There's nothing more dramatic for a team to deal with than the change of the quarterback position, and it just had to happen. I'm not going to promise anything spectacular except that I'll, I'll prepare as hard as anybody in this league will prepare, and I'll play as hard as anybody in this league will play. I never doubted that I would be the quarterback for that football team. I was 100% sure that at some point I would be the quarterback. You're on your track. You're on your body. The season that everybody yep. talks about. The season that before I knew you and everyone would talk about a football team and say, well, hey, if Dilfer won a Super Bowl, uh, my team can win a Super Bowl too. And you show up and we know that you weren't really screwing around as we just heard. You felt like it was going to be your job. What was that dynamic like? Now you're on to your second team. You're still young. Tony Banks is supposed to be the starter, but you didn't seem to think that that was the plan at all for you. No, and that's, this is always a hard story to tell because I really like Tony. I respect Tony, and he played pretty darn good for a period of time. Um, the guy I knew, because now, now I'm six years in, I'm a Wiley vet. I'm not just a vet, I'm a Wiley vet based on the experience, based on the pelts on the wall competitively, not statistically, competitively. Um, well-respected uh, amongst, you know, the community of the NFL. Um, and I just knew football. At this point, it was kind of when the I just knew I knew more football than most people. And I get to this team, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I just came from one of the best defenses statistically I've ever seen. And this defense I just showed up to is amazing. Like, it, I don't want to do the comparison thing, but I knew within a week that this was a monster. And now I knew at this point in my career, how do you win when one side of the ball is a monster? Uh, how do you win the locker room? How do you win relationships? How do you win just the whole thing? And I'm like, it's just a matter of time before I'm running the show. And it had nothing to do with Tony. It's just because I knew that I knew how to win. I knew how to compete. I knew how to lead. I knew how to be the teammate that is needed when you have one of the unique sides of the ball of all time. And I, and this is, by the way, if you interview Ray or Rob Burnett or Rod Woods, they're going to say the same story, which is we knew we were only going to get better. We knew we had dudes that had a level of competitive temperament, toughness, resolve, um, football IQ that was going to be special at some point. We had a chemistry to us that was second to none. Um, so all these things start adding up. And when you're, when you've been doing this a while and you start to see things from 30,000 feet and you're always caught up in the minutia of life, it was very obvious that this was something that was going to be special. It was just a matter of time before it all gelled. And then we go on this five game stretch where we don't score a touchdown. Tony plays four of them. I played the last one. And now it's kind of like, okay. Now's the time where the great leaders, the great competitors, the guys with true, true grit, 
not book grit, not podcast grit, real grit. Guys that know how to survive in a bunker. And that's what we had. And we all raised up and said, this is ours. We own this. Our coaches don't own this. Our ownership doesn't own this. Our city doesn't own this. We own this. How are we going to fix it? And we fixed it. That run is really worth bringing up because I remember that year, you know, just watching football. And it was different then because you still didn't get to see everybody, even though the ticket did exist, I believe, then. And you just mentioned it. Five games without a touchdown. And you still... (laughs) You still won two of them, 12 points, 15. And then you had three games in a row where it was three points, six points, and then six points where you started in that game in that nine, six loss against the Steelers. And here are the, the, the upcoming, the eventual Super Bowl champions at five and four, but then you never lose another game and you beat up on Cincy. I looked at all these numbers. You roll through the playoffs. We know the story. We know that they won the Super Bowl, but two things. I want you to listen to what is actually described during this highlight on the Stokely touchdown. Billick compliments Stokely. The announcers rip Dilfer for his run in Tampa. And then Billick again complimenting the call. Now, to be fair, it might have been a great call against what they saw. And that's what they were talking about. But somehow Dilfer's ignored in all three cuts. You win a Super Bowl, and if you ever imagined winning a Super Bowl as a kid, I'm sure you probably imagined your role being different, but was it this odd pull, and I'm asking, so I'm guessing, so just correct me, but were there parts of it where you felt like, hey, can I just enjoy and appreciate this more than it seems like the public almost wants to punish me for being this Super Bowl winning quarterback because of this defense? It just, in the moment, as just an NFL fan, it felt like this weird dynamic where it was like the public didn't really want you to feel as embraced as we have with other quarterbacks that have won the Super Bowl. But you're asking the wrong person because I intuitively, I guess, and circumstantially never heard any of it. Well, that's I good. Was living in a rental home. I was living in a rental home in Owings Mills with my wife and four kids, you know, swimming underwater and competing my butt off and have an injury um, the entire year, which I ended up having to have gruesome type treatments for. It's called osteitis pubis, if anybody wants to look it up, where they had to inject 12-inch needles into my groin sockets and take my junk up against my stomach. So you can imagine the pain that that was. That was the treatment. So I'm playing the whole year with this. I can't even get out of a chair. That sounds so terrible, by the way. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, dude, I can tell this. This is a podcast. We can tell the story. Um, I can't throw a slant in practice on certain days because I'm in so much pain. Um, You know, I just life circumstances. I was so locked in. You know, everybody says win the moment. I was desperate to win the moment. I mean, I lived every day of that second half of that season where I was just trying to win truly the moment. I was trying to get through the next rep. I was trying to get through the next five minutes of a meeting. I was trying to figure out the next blitz we're going to face. 
I can I so vividly remember the desperation of trying to pick myself up emotionally every single day to give my teammates everything I had. And that's why I think there's that deep respect for my uh, investment in that team that year because they all saw it. I mean, they saw warming up how I couldn't bring my knees up to my hips. They saw how I couldn't do certain things. Yet come Sunday, it's full go, and I'm going to do everything I can to help us win a game. Um, so there's just a lot of backstories never get told. I never heard the out stories because my point of all that was I didn't watch TV. I watched lacrosse to fall asleep. I was also an insomniac, and I would lay on this couch downstairs in this rental house because I drove my wife nuts trying to toss and turn going to bed every night. And I'd sit there, and what do you do in Maryland at 1 o'clock in the morning? You watch lacrosse because it's on 24-7. So I would sit there and watch lacrosse, so I fell asleep, wake up, rinse and repeat. I never watched Sports Center. I never watched any other news channel. I never read a publication. It wasn't until after I'd gone to Disneyland winning the Super Bowl that I heard that one of my best friends, Steve Young, had said that I had set back football 50 years. <laughs> so, like, I didn't know what was going on except survival. Maybe that was a better word than desperate. I was in true survival mode. And then you're in survival mode for your career. They don't bring you back. They go with Elvis Gerback. I know there was bitterness with Brian Billick, the head coach at the time. I know you've since remedied that going back and looking at this stuff. But in that moment, I don't know if he spoke to you personally. What did he say to you? What did he say to your agent? Hey, you won a Super Bowl, but we're going to go in another direction. They didn't handle it well. And I've called Ozzy and Brian out on this. And, and they would be wrong if they disputed this. They didn't handle it. It's probably not their finest moment. Um, they had Matt Cavanaugh, my quarterback coach, offense coordinator, and dear friend call me on my way to the ESPYs. I'm going to represent our team at the ESPYs. And I get a call in the airport that I'm number three on their free agent list. Because I was never cut as a free agent. I signed a one-year deal when I came there. So I was a free agent. And I kind of sensed after Disneyland that there was a narrative going on that wasn't good on my behalf. But, you know, at the point, that point in my life, father of four, I just, you know, I've been through a lot of fires. I was just like, it is what it is. You know, I'm going to make the most of whatever happens. And then Matt Cavanaugh calls me. I'm sitting like, no, I'll never forget where I was in there. The turmoil. I can go sit in the chair in the turmoil I was at, where my wife was at, what bag I had my bag packed in, my carry-on. And hearing Matt Cavanaugh tell me, you're not going to believe this, and I don't agree with it, but this is a decision that Brian and Ozzy have made, but you're number three. Brad Johnson's one, all the spurbacks two, and you're number three. And I went, I was fine with the Brad thing, to be honest with you. I always respected Brad, respected the kind of football player he was. But to be behind a guy that I thought, and I said that he knows, because he knows never to come up to me in a public place. Um, to be behind a guy that just doesn't play the game with the grit and the toughness and the leadership that I think the position needs and demands, um, that was a true kick in the nuts. So wait a minute, you're still that weird with, Elvis Gerbach, that it would be, it might go down if you guys ran into each other? Well, that was Hard Knocks year number one, if people remember. And he went on camera and said, well, now this team will actually get a real quarterback. And I happened to be watching. How mad were you? So, uh, still, I, I've let, oh, I've met, let 99% of the stuff that happened in my career go. That's the 1% like that. 
All right. We'll try to book him as a guest if we ever get you on again. (laughs) (laughs) More from Trent in a second. But first, are you looking for a high-protein snack that is low in carbs? Check out Just the Cheese, made by a family-owned cheese company in Wisconsin. Where else would you want your cheese to come from? Just the Cheese launched last year and is already a top 100 grocery product on Amazon, as well as Amazon's choice for the keto snacks. The idea came from a bunch of cheese heads who were eating grilled cheese sandwiches and felt the best parts were the crunchy pieces that had melted off in the pan. So they decided to create a snack made from 100% baked Wisconsin cheese. Each pack contains two bars, eight grams of protein, and less than one gram of carbs, plus they're sugar-free, gluten-free, and shelf-stable. It's the perfect grab-and-go snack for your laptop bag, your gym bag, or whenever you want something satisfying. I got to tell you right now, every time I show up to tape a pod, guess who's eating just the cheese snacks? It's Kyle. He's over there. Well, there you go. Hop on Amazon or justthecheese.com and use the promo code DUAL, D-U-A-L, 10 off. Got that? That's DUAL, 10 off. And get 10% off. That's promo code DUAL, 10 off for just 10% off. Okay, so I this was a lot of fun going through it because I'm reading, I read a New York Times article from 2001 where it was May 15th, you hadn't signed with anybody. Um, and it was really crazy too. I don't, do you remember this? I think it was the active Jacksonville Jaguars GM who started shitting on you in the art. Like he put his name on it, but it was like one current GM and it was Mike. I can't remember the last name, McGonaghy or something, or um, he just started kind of like dumping on you as a little bit of a player. I was like, holy shit, like the real GM is sitting here ripping on an actual guy who's a free agent. And then you finally get to what, Seattle in August? So yep. that, that went on forever. And like, look, I'm not sitting here doing the, the retrospective of, you were this great QB and you were overlooked, but that still felt so weird that it went on that long. What was that like? Two of the most affirming moments of my career happened in that span. Um, Dick Vermeil brought me in a trip to Kansas City. And, uh, he had just told me how much he, how good I, he thought I was and how much value I had as a player and just really did the fatherly thing for me. Um, and then getting to Mike Holmgren, uh, Mike Marks also called during that time to come back up Kurt at the time, I believe. And then Mike Holmgren called and it was, it wasn't, you know, a, a management person it was Mike Holmgren. And he goes, I'll never forget your pro day. This is one of the finest pro days I've ever seen. He goes, I've watched every part of your career. and You've never truly been unlocked and been able to play the position the way it's deserved to play. You've never been taught true, true artistic offense. Um, And I want to be the guy that does that for you because I think you're special. And I hadn't heard I was special in quite a long time, right? Um, And... I showed, and he told me the deal. They had just traded for Hasselback, and he thought he was the incumbent. He saw a lot of potential in him and learned from Favre and all these different things. But he said, You just trust me. He said, You trust me, and I'll get the most out of you. And it was the beginning of my renaissance as a football player slash football mind. Like, that's where when I get up and talk on TV or the radio about something that most people can't comprehend in a you know football context or a quarterback context, the genesis of all this learning was learning not just through Mike Holmgren, but Bill Walsh through Mike Holmgren. 
and Steve Young threw Mike Holmes in, and Joe Montana threw Mike Holmes in, and Brett Favre threw Mike Holmes in, and then studying on my own and, and really taking a massively deep dive into not just football, but the essence of how the position should be played at every level, not just on the field, but off. So I found a quote because you and Matt Hasselbeck didn't get along very well in the beginning. And I found a bunch of quotes, actually. So I'm sure this is all going to jog your memory here. I don't know how long the feud lasted, but we'll get to that. But in the beginning, Matt admits that he didn't like how much you threw around your faith and that he admitted that he was sort of some punk from Boston and he thought that you might have been phony. But here's the thing is, is, is somebody that's associated with Massachusetts and living in Boston myself. I mean, I don't feel like a real Boston guy, although I think that's kind of what might have been. We think everybody's fake. So that wasn't specific to you. And then the quote that you said about Matt, I think after the fact, but did you say this to his face? Here's the quote. I told Matt the truth, Dilfer said. I told him you're not very good. You think you are. You're pretty. You throw a nice ball. You know a lot of Brett Favre regurgitated information, but you're not very good. He hated that. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I mean, this is the, the beginning of kind of my truth teller phase in my life where I was just kind of done with BS. I was done with politics. I was done with you know, just why does it take so long to get to the root of something? And I asked for my life. I surround myself. I surround myself with people in my life that told me the truth. I didn't want to be. I didn't want perfume poured on me anymore. And uh, I, I had a deep, deep um, love for Matt and Sarah, um, for because I saw a young me. And leading up to that, he also knew this. I said, Matt, my job is to prevent you from making all the mistakes I made. And you're just young enough and dumb enough that you're on your track to making all the mistakes I, I made. And you don't have to learn from others' mistakes. You can learn by not. I mean, you can learn from others' mistakes. You don't have to make it yourself. And that's when that comment came in. Is, let me tell you the truth of where you're at. And let me be the one that helps you not make these same mistakes and actually be good and actually be authentic and actually be a dude and play for dozens of years in this league and, and, uh, you know, be everything you should be. And, uh, that's really that. So that's 2000 the relationship wasn't great, but I think he began to trust me by the end of the year. Then they want to cut him. I play great in 2000. Um, the four games I start, the whole team wants me university of Washington stadium with chance Bill for Bill for, and I would go up to Matt on the sidelines and go, hey, man, I'm sorry that I was waving the towel around when they are chanting my name. <laughs> uh, just, just to bust his chops, to, you know, loosen up the, the vibe a little bit because he was struggling. Um, and then that offseason, they gave, you know, they gave me the big contract that is incentive-based, and he's kind of cast out. But he had a massive growth period in his life, and we, get, we began a great connection. We became great friends. He was a great backup. Uh, our wives became great friends. They're dear, dear friends to this day. Um, Matt and I are dear friends. But 2001 was really neat because it was um, it was this. I don't know how to. I don't have the words to explain it. But we both had to learn a ton about life, a ton about ourselves, a ton about relationships, and really both served each other and the relationship deep and greatly because. He had to learn to be a servant leader to me early on when he was hurt, bitter, and angry, and broken. And then I tear my Achilles, 
and I'm out, and I just lose twelve million bucks the, the day I tore, tore my Achilles because my contract's all incentive base. I'm about to make a ton of money, and boom, I tear my Achilles. I rupture my Achilles. Now he comes in, and I'm rehabbing from an Achilles and trying to serve him. So it, it was a crazy, crazy year. Yeah, and you would also hurt your MCL in the preseason, and then you have the Achilles because yep. I don't, I don't think maybe Seahawks fans remember it, but I doubt many, you know, even hardcore NFL fans, because this is just tough stuff to keep track of, that you were going to beat out Matt. Like, it was going to be your job again later on in the four years you were there. I don't know that we can ever tell the story, Trent, without, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think anybody could ever face, and that also is part of the connection with you and Matt. And I just, I always, I've thought about how I want to ask this question, and I know I'm going to screw it up, but losing your son in 2003... And still coming back to play football. And I'm sure the moments where you go, what's the point of any of this? But then Matt being there for you. And I was just reading these stories where he would bring over Sega 94, which I absolutely love that you guys are still playing 94 Sega in 2002 and 2003. And just staying up all night where you're still kind of competing for this job. You're going through this thing. And it really felt like that was the moment where the competition stopped. And you just were there for each other in completely different ways. Thank you. That's the question beautifully. I mean, because you answered part of it too. The competition stopped. It became about relationship and had nothing to do with football. I was 268 pounds. I was in massive depression. I'm a month, couple months removed from losing our, our second child, our son Trevin, who was five and a half at the time. Um, holding, we're holding on by a thread as a family. I mean, we're literally surviving to make sure the three girls aren't devastated the rest of their life. Um, I'm drinking a bottle of wine at night just to numb myself to go to bed. Um, my teammates had come down to the memorial service. People had reached out. I had awesome people around me. Couldn't have more support, but was still massively depressed and, and fat as heck. And I, I mean, football was not on my mind. And he calls me one night and uh, just says, you know, Everybody's going to say that you need us, but we need you. Now, here he is. Now he's the dude again. I mean, I'm not going to be able to play. There's really no competition. I had, you know, I'm coming off a ruptured Achilles. I didn't fully rehab. To this day, I have half a calf. Um, I'm 268 pounds. haven't touched a weight, a football, anything. Um, and here he's saying, this team can't survive without you. And you need to get your ass up here. Now, imagine the courage that took. Right. Um, and the, the connection that we had to have for him to be able to do that. And uh, it resonated with me. And I went to my wife and I said, I think he's right. Um, I need it. They need me. We can't, we're not going to survive right now um, unless we do this. And uh, to her credit, like most any good thing that's happened in my life, she should get the credit for. Um, she let me go. Now I'm. It's a handful of months to move from the most devastating thing I've ever go for. I'm in a dorm room by myself, trying, you know, spending my days kind of on an elliptical, a bike, just trying to lose weight. Everybody's tiptoeing around me. They don't know what to say. We didn't have the same services now that NFL players do now with sports psychologists and mental health experts. So I'm trying to figure out depression on my own. Um, and I'm crying myself to sleep, and Matt hears it because he's in their dorm room next door, and it's a college dorm with thin, you know, sheetrock walls. And knock, 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 knock. 
And here he comes. And he's got Sega Genesis 94. Let's plug it in and play. And he would stamp with me all night and never flinch. Now, here's the guy that's getting ready to have his really coming out party. And his team, he played good at the end of the year before. You know, it's all good. His teammates have bought back into him. They've seen our relationship. So they know, like, this is a good thing. And and he just served me. Uh, to this day, I tell people all the time that Matt can tick me off. I can tick him off. But I jump in front of a gun tomorrow without flinching um, because of what he did for me and my family. And, uh, and uh, I can't believe I'm crying. I usually cry when I get to this part. But, you know, I always say he thinks I exaggerate all these things. And he'll go on record to Trent's exaggerate. He's a great storyteller. I'm not exaggerating. He saved my life. Um, because I don't know if we would have survived. I don't know if I was in a place where I could have done it any longer um, without that. And I think that's what shapes so much of who I am now. That's why I'm so big into connection. That's why I'm so big in authenticity. That's why I'm so big into truth telling. I'm so big into my faith. And that's why I'm so big into things that are way, way, way treetop type stuff. Um, that really matters in life because I experienced it in the most raw level um, in that period of my life. That was really well said. And it's a story that I would encourage a lot of people to read more about too. And knowing, um, getting to know you after the fact and, and knowing all these things and how genuine they are. It's, it's a reason why I, I've always liked you as much as I have. There's one or two more questions that I do want to ask. And I'd like to make it a little lighter, and that is, as much fun as going home to San Francisco was, and I know how important Alex Smith is to you, and even the arguments you and I have had about Alex Smith, was Cleveland an even bigger fucking disaster than we knew from the outside? (laughs) Oh, man. I actually, my wife, this is like the one thing we argue about all the time to this day. I thought it was great. I thought it was, I had worked so hard in 04 to get back to being a good athlete again. And I was playing good quarterback. Now I'm a scout team quarterback in the NFL, which you don't really know how good you are. I'd lost, you know, there's a lot of rust on me. There's a lot of baggage, a lot of scar tissue. But man, I'm dealing in practice and I'm athletic again. And I'm, 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 fit, I'm strong, I discovered, you know, like Pilates and core strength and movement patterns and, you know, I had this like epiphany on how the body's supposed to move and and if, I mean, I am feeling, my homer looks at me one day in practice, you throw a football as well as any person I've ever seen, seen throw a football. I mean, that's Mike Holmgren telling me that. I mean, it is just perfect. And I'm like, I should maybe try to be a starter again. Right. But think about the narrative around me. Think of the, think of the baggage and the scar tissue in the NFL circles around me. Like we just told the story in what the last 40 minutes. Yeah. And I mean, but there, there's so much more to it. And, and here comes Phil Savage who knew me as a competitor, knew me as a player, knew me as a leader, knew influence I had in Baltimore. And now he's the GM at Cleveland. And he's like, I, I need you to be the term I made up. He didn't use this term, but the sacrificial lamb. Like, you got to be the guy that comes in and changes the culture because you are a culture changer. And you're playing really good. I've talked to people to watch you in practice. 
and you've played a couple games this year and Matt's been banged up and you've played really well. Like, come be that guy. And I couldn't have been more excited. I, you know, this, I like climbing big mountains. Like, I love huge challenges. I love people saying I can't. I love, you know, being an underdog and all that good stuff. And, and I'm like, I was made for this. And I went there and you talked to, you talked to Romeo Cornell and John Lott, the strength coach and Phil Savage. We crushed that off season. We did start to change the culture. We played pretty darn good at times before I got hurt. And then I, you know, just one more injury. You know, I've had a broken collarbone. I've had off status pubis. I've had fractured back. I've had 11 separated shoulders. And now I tear my patella tendon. And I try to, it's like a half corn. I try to play on it. I try to play on it. Then boom, snap. And, you know, not anybody that knows, you know, tendon issues, it's like my Achilles tendon, tear your tendon. You kind of done. There ain't nothing you can do. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, it's week, whatever, eight, nine, ten, I can't remember. I've invested everything in this. I thought this is where I was supposed to go. I'm, I still can help change culture, but I'm done. Like, I'm done as a player. And, uh, but I somehow, like, I still have good connections with that group. And I, I value that here. Now, my wife writes off the train map, like you said. Um, but I, I actually, I was juiced by that off season and that training camp. And, uh, I really believe if Romeo Quinnell hires a different offensive coordinator, he could have turned it around. Like that, that thing was brought down by one bad hire. Um, the Romeo was doing the right thing. And that, that thing was looked way different than the narrative around Cleveland has been up until last year. Um, and, uh, I, and again, a long-winded way of saying that I actually I don't look at it as a train wreck. Well, and then getting, no. to San Francisco, getting to San Francisco was simply a go home to where I grew up. My roots now had been deep West Coast roots because I learned the, the secrets behind the veil from Mike Holmgren. Um, Steve Young had always been a nice mentor in my life. I wanted to be around him. I wanted to be around that community, Ronnie Lott and Dwight Clark and that group of guys that I grew up admiring that had become friends. Uh, John Brody was a mentor of mine. I wanted to take his number out of retirement to honor him, to get him in the Hall of Fame. It became more about other stuff than playing. I never thought I'd play another snap in the NFL. I never thought Alex was going to get hurt in my last year and end up getting me killed because he got hurt. But that was really just, uh, I just wanted to get home and end well. Well, you play that season in 2007 at 35, and that's your last season. So the final question that I want to ask you is, I don't want 35-year-old Trent Dilfer's advice. I want today's 47-year-old Trent Dilfer's advice. Could that Trent have given any advice to the 22-year-old rookie that would have made you a different player and would have changed the path of your career? Wow, I usually don't get stumped on questions, Ryan. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so, because there's a way of giving advice. You don't tell people you connect with people. And that's the biggest flaw in the NFL. It's very strong coaching right now. Yeah, a lot of people want to tell you what you do right or wrong. Very few are willing to connect with you. And I think at that stage in my life, I would have known to connect with 22-year-old Trent before I told him what to do or what not to do. And I mean, I'm living it right now. Like I got the flashy ring and I'm the head coach in a little community in Nashville and blah, 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 blah. And I could probably tell these people to do whatever I want. And they would line up and do it for a short period of time. That's the last thing I'm doing. 
I'm trying to connect with every person I make. I mean, every person I meet, I'm trying to find deep connections in life. Um, because once you connect with people and you understand their side of life, now you have empathy, now you have grace and mercy, and now they know you're authentic. And then whatever comes out later is you're just trying to help them do their journey better. And I think at that age, if somebody connected with me authentically like that, I really would have received it. I believe that. And I couldn't be happier for you at Lipscomb in this whole story and how it's gone down. And I can't wait to see you guys come play this fall in Nashville. I can't wait to have you, man. It's awesome. This community is awesome. These kids are awesome. I've never been more overwhelmed but more alive in my life. So I think all of my life story has kind of led to this moment. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just been really cool. Uh, life's journey is cool, as we know, and I'm in a really cool season of it right now. Thanks as always, Trent. Talk to you soon. What did I tell you? I told you Trent Dilfer is going to be awesome. And you know who else is going to be awesome? Josh McCown. I'm going to tease that one for you in a second. But just to remind you that if you're looking for a high-protein snack that's low in carbs and isn't the usual boring beef jerky or nuts, check out Just the Cheese. One pack has two bars that are kind of like crunchy granola bars, except they're made of 100% cheese. Plus, they contain 8 grams of protein, less than 1 gram of carbs, and they're sugar-free and gluten-free. So you're working out, be like, hey, do you want a snack? Do you want a shake? No. No thanks, just the cheese. Hop on to Amazon or justthecheese.com and use the promo code DUAL10 off for 10% off. I love Kyle on these because he's such a great audience for a podcast of one. Makes me feel great. I wouldn't say McMahon because I think your laughs are more genuine. So I appreciate it. I promise you. Yeah. Coming up, part four, Josh McCown with incredible Raiders QB room stories. Think about this QB room. Lane Kiffin head coach, Josh McCown, and also Dante Culpepper, and a rookie Jamarcus Russell, and Andrew Walter, and Ronald Curry, technically, if you remember him from UNC. So we'll do it again. I hope you enjoyed this one. Please subscribe to the Dual Threat podcast from The Ringer, and all Ringer podcasts, gearing you up for Game of Thrones. And of course, once a week with me and Bill Simmons, and we just taped a massive NBA playoff preview one, and we're going to be doing another one in just a couple days. Uh, looking at the first weekend playoff games. So I always hope you enjoy the content. Hit me up at Ryan A. Rosillo. Uh, you have any questions about it. I'm not going to promise I'm going to read all this stuff because it just depends on my mood. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.